I just realized a, a technical problem which I'll try and overcome. I, as a matter of principle, I never write my papers. They're not really papers. But I wanted to quote some things, and suddenly I realized the screen is over there. So I'm, I'll have the presentation in front of me here as well in case I need to quote something. Um, let's begin. All right. Uh, maybe before I begin, if I may, I'll explain why this event is so significant to me personally and why it's an incredible honor to be invited to be here today amongst all of you and in the presence of President Higgins. It's less than two decades ago when I first came to Ireland as a student to study at UCD history. And I was taking a seminar in modern Irish history and I didn't show up to the classes because on the other floor, Upstairs, in the Anglo-Irish Literature Department, Declan Kybert was doing another seminar which seemed more interesting. <laughs> so I used to skip the classes, of the MA classes, and go upstairs to Declan's, uh, Professor Kybert's uh, seminar, in particular because of the speakers that he brought. And one week he brought over a sociologist, Professor Michael D. Higgins. And I listened to that lecture, and it changed the whole way I look at Ireland and the whole way I perceive some of the subjects I deal with. Incidentally, a couple of weeks later, and I recall this very well, I bumped into Professor Higgins at the time, also a politician at the time, um, in the Abbey Theatre. We'd both seen a play, and we quickly exchanged a few words in the hall, and he directed me to a book, which I still remember well. It was James C. Scott, Domination and the Arts of Resistance. He said, Guy, you've got to read that. So I went straight to the university library and took that book, and that changed the whole way I look at history. So this is a formative event for me in many ways. I wouldn't have believed at the time that I'd be standing in front of you here or that I'd finish, my, finish a PhD in modern Irish history or that I'd be a professor of history or that you would be president of Ireland. It's, it's remarkable <laughs> in every way. Um, so, so, I mean, th this is, it's, it's remarkable in every way. I'd also say it's important for me to be here alongside both Patricia and Ida, who I've known for a few years now. We corresponded for years, we've appeared already together in a few events, um, and we co-wrote an article for History of Ireland years ago, which I think is probably my, our most read, mine at least, my most read text, and I also think it's the most plagiarized text. <laughs> it's the text which has been quoted by students and pupils in schools I hear time and time again, without attribution, <laughs> and by some adults and some academics, and I take that as a tribute, actually. So the, that's, the whole thing is significant in many levels. What I'm going to do today, I actually feel that I have very little to talk about today for the simple reason that we've heard all the information, I believe. And more than that, having heard the president's introduction, I really think he touched on all the points I want to discuss today. So maybe I'll just go and step and describe them again. It's a second telling of a story that's been told. But I should have known that in advance. And I didn't anticipate that everything I want to talk about you, you would know in advance. But because of that, I will start by commenting on the context now in Ireland and the decade of centenaries. And I will even comment on our host's involvement in this decade of centenaries. And then I'll take us on a journey which will be both theoretical, geographical, and historical. And if I complete the whole journey, I'll bring us right back to where we are now. So let's go and start in Glasnevin. We see the exhibition outside from Glasnevin. Glasnevin, a few months ago, Armistice Day, the president is laying a wreath and he offered reflections as he's offered here and his reflections are always spot on. So let's look at a segment from his speech uh, from that day. For many years, 
There was an uncertainty, even a reticence, to recognize the human cost and reality of the First World War and those who fought and died in it. In our public history, the reticence was reflected by a form of official amnesia that left a blank space in our public memory. Sorry that I don't say to the same diction as the president who says it's much better than myself, I'm sorry. That has now changed as citizens across our island have begun to discover a great and perhaps too long delayed insight into the experience of their grandparents, great-grandparents and neighbors. With the excavation of the past, we have a far greater understanding of the motivation. Those who enlisted in the war can continue. Now the point of excavating forgotten memories, we've heard before it is described as an ethical mission. It's quite remarkable, but it has a history. And the history goes back at least 50 years ago to the 50th commemoration of 1916, when, sorry, I didn't show that whole quote there. I should have shown as I went along. When F.X. Martin, in a incredibly prescient um, article and a critique of the 50th celebrations of 1916, commented on what he identified as the great oblivion, an example of national amnesia. So already then he spoke about this forgetting at a time which was very unpopular to talk of forgetting, pointing out the lacuna and the way Ireland commemorates its past. And indeed, many others have followed sweet and followed in this line. If we say, for example, Kevin Myers has of course written about it, Miles Dungan, among others, have written about the forgetting and how the Great War, which as the President rightly remarked, perhaps shouldn't be called the Great War, but still a term which is used, so keep in accordance with common parlance, is all about, is a story of forgetting in Ireland. For that reason, I think it's remarkable that if we look closely at the President's speech, the President sharpened our awareness to what is happening. It's not simply forgetting. It's not just amnesia. It's official amnesia. And this relates to what he calls public memory. Now, this sharpening is needed. And I'm starting with this specifically because I think it's crucial. And I'll explain. Among the many reactions to this whole rhetoric, most people have accepted this notion that the Great War or the First World War was forgotten in Ireland. But was it really forgotten, completely obliterated? It wasn't. Just to give an example, one of the responses to a review of Kevin Myers's book by Miles Duncan in um, History Ireland came from a man who grew up in a working class neighborhood in Dublin. Let me just show it there. And he explains how in his neighborhood in Dublin, people remembered the war. There was a veteran of the war who used to go around in his medals and they knew him and they respected him. People even know, we as part of the wider public were well aware of Ireland's involvement in the Great War. We also knew, by the way, that official Ireland had supported the building of the War Memorial Gardens in Island Bridge. So are we really talking about forgetting? On the one hand, yes. On the other hand, there were recollections. So what, how do we square this dilemma? In order to do that, I'm going to introduce a theoretical concept here. We've heard about the details of the pandemic, but we need to step back and try and evaluate these terms and understand their theoretical implications. I'm going to introduce the term social forgetting, which I'm heavily invested in over the last 15 years or so, and I'd like to explain what I mean by social forgetting. The first point to observe when I refer to social forgetting, not collective forgetting, and that's important, it's not collective amnesia. As the President already commented, I do not subscribe to the use of the term collective memory. 
unless in very specific circumstances. As a community, not everybody remembers in one form, in one unified, one unified form, in a homogenous way. It's always certain people remember in one way, other people remember in another way. It's always a struggle. And in the same sense, there's no collective amnesia of everybody forgetting as if it's a light bulb. We could just switch it off and it goes away. It doesn't work like that. More than that, it's never or rarely ever total oblivion in the sense that we decide to forget something and it disappears. There's always traces. Are we attuned to these traces? So why do I prefer the term social forgetting? Because social forgetting, as I understand it, is about, I can't point it out here, about this gap, this tension between public forgetting, silence, reticence, not talking about an event, and private and local remembrance. We've heard lots of examples today of private and local remembrance, but we've also heard the general concept that people have forgotten about the flu. But we have to realize the two work in tandem. Forgetting is a form of remembrance in some way. That's the paradox which we've got to get our head around. And I'll try and explain it, what sounds a bit confusing. So let's look at this together. I'll also add another theoretical point, and I'm sorry if this sounds a bit theoretical, but it's worth stepping back and looking at what we're doing from a distance. Social memory, which is the term that I prefer to collective memory, has a history. We can follow its history. We can follow how it develops over time. The great German scholar Jan Assmann uh, called it a mnemo history. Like, why mnemo history? Because it's after the Greek muse of memory, mnemosine. Therefore, I think social forgetting also has a history. We can chart its vicissitudes and how it changes over time. This is what I call, also in tribute to the ancient Greeks, lethe history. Lethe is the, is the river Lethe, the river of forgetting in Greek mythology. So let's try and understand. And the last point I'm going to make theoretical, and we'll jump into some other issues, is that social forgetting can be counted. It's not the end of story. We like to believe that once you forget something, it's forgotten. It's not terminal. We can rediscover the past. So social forgetting can be countered. So let's explain that, even though it seems to me quite obvious from things we've heard. It's already been shown to us. But let's look at it a bit closer if I may. I'm going to stay with the First World War for a bit because we have to understand what we commemorate, what we don't commemorate. And I'm starting, of course, with the classic, the locus classicus, if you wish, of First World War commemoration in Dublin. Not too far away from here. Island Bridge, the War Memorial Gardens, which, again, from last Armistice Day, uh, the Irish Independent describes as the gardens we had forgotten we'd forgotten because it has a remarkable history of a site which took a long time in the making, and then hosted some very big commemorations, and then kind of lapsed into decay, and was then renewed, and is now being restored fully in many ways. So it's a whole remarkable history behind that site. But what's interesting for me at the moment to comment is this is one of the, most, one of the more remarkable, out of many remarkable sites that the great architect, Edward Luttons, designed. And he is one of the great men behind um, the way we commemorate the First World War. I feel slightly uncomfortable talking about this here because Professor Horn is here, who's the greatest expert in Ireland on this topic. So um, you'll catch me out later for the mistakes that I'm making here. Um, in as many ways, my mentor in this field. And indeed, if we go and look at the sites of memory on the continent, we'll find time and time again the marks of Luttons in his great memorial site. So we can see here the memorial site at the Somme or the various cemeteries, these designs which are iconic designs of commemoration. So what do we find here? 
in terms of the theory that I told you before, we find that there's a mnemohistory, a century of commemorating World War I, the First World War. We've seen a century of sites of memory where these sites have been commemorated. But of course, there's a paradox because there are no such sites for the Great Flu. We have the Great War. Let's use the terms great for the moment in terms of scale. We have the Great War being remembered and the Great Flu falling into obscurity. And the two work in tandem, and I believe we need to look at them in tandem. Again, to use terms from memory studies, the Great War, First World War, is a lieu de mémoire, or a selection, or a collection of lieu de mémoire. Lieu de mémoire is what the great French historian of memory, Pierre Nora, described as sites of memory, places which are invested with memory, which through them we interact with this kind of interface of memory and history. But if there is such a thing as a site of memory, a lieu de mémoire, then suddenly we're confronted with something else when we look at the great flu. This is a lieu d'oubli, a site of forgetting. What does it mean to have a site of forgetting? And how do we deal with that? These are the issues which I'd like us to contemplate. How we have something completely different here, which hasn't been theorized yet, which we don't quite know how to deal with. So let's look at people who have theorized memory. The greatest scholar of memory of First World War, apart from John Horner's here today, on international scale, outside of Ireland, I would argue is Jay Winter. And Jay Winter has written many books on the memory of the First World War, but his first book, I think, opened a whole new field for many of us. I, was, I read that as a student and it changed the way it described to me what I'd like to do in other contexts. His first book, Sites of Memory, Sites of Mourning, issued again and again and again in multiple editions, looked at transnational memory, a German, English, French memory in tandem, together with Italian memory and Central European memory of the First World War. What's remarkable is he opens the book and I've always found this absolutely remarkable since I was an undergraduate, with the story of the great surrealist poet, Guillaume Apollinaire. Guillaume Apollinaire, a friend of Picasso and of this whole milieu of brilliant um, artists and avant-garde artists at the beginning of the century. Guillaume Apollinaire died, you can already see by the date, two days before the end of the war. And the story is described by Winter in characteristic uh, sharp, crisp style, describes how pity is a word appropriate to the circumstances of Apollinaire's death. You see, Apollinaire survived the war. Many people didn't survive this war, as we well know. Not only did he survive the Western Front and all of its horrors, he was struck in the head. He had a head injury in the Western Front. He had field surgery in the Western Front with the terrible conditions that were there, tree planning, and he survived that as well. He returned home to convalesce. He sat in a cafe. This is from the memoirs of the great film writer, uh, Sindral. Describes how he met him in a cafe. And already then they talked about Spanish flu being around. And how Spanish flu was killing more people than the war. This was already known at the time of the war, used as a cliche at least. A few days later, Sindral comes to visit his friend again and he can't be found. Sindral died of flu two days before the end of the war. Laura Spinney, in her a recent a fantastic book on the pandemic, adds another little irony, that while he was being buried in, uh, in, in Paris, in the cemetery, the armistice was being declared in the background and the crowds were shouting, death to Guillaume, death to the Kaiser. 
and Guillaume was also Guillaume Apollinaire, and he runs around and can't find the grave because so many people are being buried and you can't distinguish between them. Now, I mention this because Winter, the great expert on memory of the war, begins his book with a story of the flu. But it's marked as a death, really, of the Great War because it's a book about the Great War, not about the flu. And then there's 324 pages to this book, and Spanish influenza doesn't appear once again throughout the whole book. It doesn't appear in the index to the book. Now, this is indicative in general of histories of the First World War, which will add a sentence or a paragraph about the flu, and we'll move on. This might be changing now, but it's taking time. I'm not sure how much it's changing. We have to think about this kind of neglect and jump in terms of historiography and what it means. Perhaps the remarkable insight of the grave digger. When Sindar is running around and looking for the grave of Apollinaire, and he says, you understand, with the flu, with the war, they don't tell us the names of the dead. We put them in the ground. There are too many. Literally, they're burying the flu and burying the memory of the flu at the same time. Now, I begin with this somewhat distraction, because I think it puts things into perspective. And here, again, the president quoted him. The next big name I'd like to move to is the great American environmentalist historian who passed away a year ago, Alfred Crosby, one of the great historians of our time, not always recognized as such for his work, particularly environmental history, beyond, an, beyond anything else. But Alfred Crosby was one of the first people to write a history of the flu, but in North America. It was an American focus. The book was first called Epidemic and Peace, later reissued as America's Forgotten Pandemic. What I've always found remarkable about this book, which came out first in the 70s, was he includes in the end an, aft an afterword, on, which is titled, An Inquiry into the Peculiarities of Human Memory. He's baffled with this problem. How could there be such a major catastrophe? So many people died. I mean, we tend to believe in, in, intuitively that if many people die, if there's a catastrophe that affects our lives, we'll remember that event. And yet he couldn't find traces of memory and he wanted to figure this out. Let's, um, let's quote Crosby on this to see it directly. The important and almost incomprehensible fact about Spanish influenza, influenza is that it killed millions upon millions of people in a year or less. I'm skipping. And yet it has never inspired awe. It's remarkable, millions dying and it doesn't inspire a reaction. This inaptitude for wonder and fear cannot be attributed to a lack of information, and that's important. It's not that people didn't know about it. There are piles and piles of sources waiting to be looked at, and yet they weren't looked at. And this is a puzzle that as historians and as public in general we should be concerned with. Why are certain events remembered and other events relegated to be forgotten? And were they forgotten? And what does that mean? These are questions which really should trouble us, I believe. So I'll give some of the reasons, which have already come up during the papers so far, of why Crosby at least speculated why it was forgotten. And we've heard this in the talks in some way already in Ireland, but let's look at it on a larger scale. The very nature of the disease and its epidemiological characteristics encourage forgetfulness. The fact that it struck quickly, that it moved on, there was the three waves and the disease never came back again. Or if it did, was it that disease or not? It's problematic. People couldn't get their heads around it. This transience of coming and going, it seemed to kind of avoid memory, elude memory. Let's also remember the timing. This happens at the end of the war, at the beginning of the peace. People are concerned with other issues, but we'll return to that in a minute. Other, other uh, reasons that uh, Cosby gives. If flu was a common disease lodged in folk memory as a subject of terror, 
then it would have inspired panic. And this is interesting. I remember going to the archives of the Irish Folklore Commission, which is one of the great repositories of Irish memory in UCD, and looking up the flu pandemic. Unlike Angorta Moor, Unflu Moor doesn't appear there as a category, barely mentioned, barely mentioned at all. Now, there are other events that do, that are registered in folk memory. It's not that diseases in general elude folk memory. Certain diseases are there. TB, I think, is lodged very distinctively in folk memory in Ireland. There are events which are there, but the flu is always seen as something light. In the same way that today we always treat somebody caught the flu, we use this term lightly when somebody catches a common cold, and it's not the common cold. So it's never quite registered. He mentions another interesting point, which I'm not too sure about, but it's a point to think about. If the pandemic had killed one or more of the really famous figures of the nation or world, it would have been remembered. The notion of big men history. Well, quite a few people were ill from the flu. Few famous people died of the flu, it's true, even though the more I look at it, each time I find another name and another name. But maybe because of the fact that, as we heard, it killed very, very young children. We've heard about infant mortality. And it also killed the adult group of young adults, which were at the time were less the famous people. Leaders were later. So the young FDR, for example, is sick from flu, but he's not FDR. We don't know that he will go to become the president of America. Wilson is also sick. Not, I'm not too, all too sure about the argument if it was really the Spanish flu, but that's a different point. But the point is that we don't have a list of people to... to so the history of the time didn't make this register of people. So it kind of eluded memory on that sense. Something else that Cosby did in his sharpness and mentions, it had an enormous influence, but one that utterly evades logical analysis. And that has been completely ignored by all commentators on the past. So he says we have something illogical there. We don't know how to deal with it. And how do we get ourselves around this conundrum? Ida touched on this, I think, very well. But I'm going to theorize it a little bit further. It was the great professor of experimental psychology, the first professor of experimental psychology at Cambridge, Sir Frederick Bartlett, Frederick Charles Bartlett, who already in the 1930s, in the interwar period, was the first psychologist to address the topic of memory, individual memory. But his whole concept was, in order to remember an event, it had to relate to something that was familiar to us. We relate our memories to schemata, to schemes, to templates. We see something which is strange and then we kind of move the memory and put it on something that was familiar to us from before. You can explain that, but let's take that for granted at the moment because it'll take me a while to explain. And flu didn't seem to fit any of the templates of what we remember in history. So is flu not memorable? Something we have to think about. Are there certain events which just can't be remembered? I'm putting a question mark, because I don't buy into that that quickly. But then again, the president has always knew who to look at. I think we need to look at the work of Maurice Alvachs very carefully. Maurice Alvachs, the man who invented the term collective memory. I really think he meant social memory, but he used collective memory and sometimes social memory. Maurice Alvachs explained that memory as he sees it is always a social phenomena. There are social frameworks that th through which we negotiate our memories of the past, our family, our places at work, um, groups, and as groups we discuss and work out our memories and keep them and maintain them. Now, Halbachs didn't write about forgetting. He forgot to write about forgetting, if you wish. But in that sense, Halbachs, when you look about it, didn't write about the social frameworks of social forgetting. Are there was there conditions which didn't allow people to attach their personal memories to, to, to the great flu, to, to uh, their personal memories of the great flu to an historical context? 
There were ways of remembering the Great War through veteran associations, through national commemoration, but there weren't the social frameworks to remember the flu. And that's a point we have to think about. What's missing here is this social context. Context is so important. So to go back to Crosby, for Crosby, this was a mystery and a paradox. And what particularly per perplexed him was that when he looked at America, and America is not the beginning and end of anything. It's different in different societies, and I'll comment on a few other societies. But when he looked at America, he says it was barely noticed. People didn't recall. And yet, and this is the interesting point, if one turns to intimate accounts, Ida gave us some very close intimate accounts, reminiscences, then it's obvious that people did notice the flu. It's obvious that people did remember the pandemic quite clearly and often acknowledge it as one of the most influential experiences of their lives. We've had a tasting of that. So we have this paradox, and that is the paradox of social forgetting. Now, I want to introduce you to somebody else who's interesting here who hasn't been mentioned and has to be mentioned, and that's Richard Collier. Richard Collier was an amateur historian, wrote popular histories, quite remarkable popular histories, and a great believer in oral history and personal testimonies. In the 1970s, he did a remarkable project, self-funded. There was no university funding. There was no Irish Research Council. There was no Wellcome Trust to turn to. Privately funded, he placed ads in newspapers around the world and asked people if they have memories of the flu 50 years after the event. And he got hundreds of responses from all over the world. He traveled to places, he corresponded with places, he got people to translate it. The archive is now in London, in the Imperial War Museum. He published a book called The Plague of the Spanish Lady in 1974, reissued in 1996. A remarkable book, because it tells personal stories collected 50 years after the events from places all over the world. He collected 1,770 testimonies from 29 different countries. It was clear that there were strong memories of this event on a personal level. And this is opposed to official neglect of it, to neglect even in historiography. This book came and went. A second edition comes out later, but for many people, they looked at the book and said, this is anecdotal. It's not real history. What do we do with it? Historians didn't know how to deal with this book, which is remarkable when you read this book in every way. You're introduced to the flu through transnational stories from across the globe. It's the kind of history we like to do today, just ahead of its time. And just to make a point here, so we see persistence of individual memories and family traditions in, condi in conditions where it's being neglected officially. Now, this is not happening only in this project. There's other projects, but very few. I'll introduce you to a couple of others which have only been published now, though we are collected and inspired directly by Collier in the late 70s. Two retired academics today were young PhD students at the time. I think they were even MA students at the time in the 70s. Howard Phillips, who Ida talked told us about, mentioned. Howard Phillips, a South African historian, read Collier's work and said, I've got to do that as well in South Africa. Went and interviewed people in South Africa from black communities, from white communities, from across South Africa, compiled their testimonies, wrote his PhD on the flu in South Africa. And yet, it took him many years so he could publish only this year, or just the year that passed, the collection of these testimonies, where he has 150 that he chose to publish. Similarly, Jeffrey Rice in New Zealand was also inspired by Collier. He also went out to collect in New Zealand personal testimonies, scores of them, writes his PhD about them, and yet can't, there's no interest in these stories as a collection. Only this year a publisher agreed to publish them. It's remarkable. 
So we have hundreds of collections and they prove time and time again that if we had asked the questions that Ida was asking in the 2000s, 50 years earlier, we would have had huge repositories and archives of these personal recollections which weren't collected at the time because nobody was interested. And this is remarkable. We have to think about these issues and what it means. Now, I'm going to again theorize, theorize here and come to rediscovery, if I may. Because we have this tension between public silence, ignoring this topic, neglect, and private recollections. Now, I'd like to just change the way we look at forgetting, because social forgetting changes the way we look at what we believe is forgetting. It was the great German psychologist, Hermann Ebbinghaus, one of the first pioneers of psychology as well in Germany in the late 19th century, who drew a forgetting curve. And since then, it's repeated in every psychological book I've seen on forgetting. And that is, the way forgetting works is, we remember something, in the initial period, we forget very, very quickly, and afterwards, it kind of peters away into terminal decline. That's our notion of forgetting. But social forgetting doesn't work like that. It has its ups and downs, events which were Forgotten can be rediscovered, can be remembered afterwards. Sometimes we need a distance from event to be able to understand it and remember it and refuse it with new energies and new recollections. And I can give numerous examples. The First World War is one example. The Holocaust is another. In the first few years after the Holocaust, it was very difficult to talk about the Holocaust. Now, there's a boom of memory on the Holocaust. Sometimes we need a distance to these events. Um, with that in mind, let's look a bit about what Ida was talking about, this great rediscovery of interest of our time. Let's put it in context and understand how we got to convene the seminar, because it's not by chance that the seminar is happening now and is not happening 50 years ago or 25 years ago. We've got to think about this context, if we may. And the, the details have all been made before, so I'll quickly run through them. One, I believe, is clearly medical. Recurring pandemics, which have happened time and time again, have brought people rushing to see historical precedents. Doctors have always turned to the great flu to explain the danger to people of another flu pandemic, which still people couldn't solve and couldn't understand. I think it's not for nothing that the first popular book on the flu pandemic of 1918-1919 was written by Charles Graves. Who I just heard by chance was the brother of Robert Graves. I didn't know that. Charles Graves wrote a book called Invasion by Virus. He wrote it in the 1950s because there was an Asian flu pandemic in the world, but no publisher was willing to publish it because they said this might scare the public. In the 1960s, there was a Hong Kong flu, another epidemic, pandemic, and then the publisher says we need something out. So he published the book that he wrote in the 50s only in the 60s. In 2002, 2003, SARS. 2003, the avian flu epidemics. 2009, 2010, the Mexican. They're never really Mexican, they're never really Spanish. Of course, these are monikers, as we heard before, pandemic. And time and time again, this fear of this epidemic, people have rushed to rediscover the precedence of looking at this great catastrophe of the great flu of the early century. So in many ways, the flu is used as a cautionary note. Time and time again, it always puzzles me. We don't just study the history of the flu because it deserves to be studied. Almost every book about the flu ends with a chapter in the end saying, can this happen again, with reflections in the end. Even your own book, I think, has reflections on the end, which is strange to me because I don't always study memory with this question at the end. You know, sometimes you just need to study it because it deserves to be studied, but that's one of the signs of rediscovery, this fear of can this happen again and what are we going to do next time. Another remarkable thing, as we should admit, medicine was caught excuse me for the, the, the rough metaphor, with its pants down. 
1918, 1919, we've heard the nurses did terrific work, but medicine didn't know what to do. They didn't know that flu was a virus even at the time. There were no real cures. It's not for nothing that people turned to oxo and bovril and alcohol and every other thing, because they were just as good as conventional medicine. There was no alternative med medicine, conventional medicine. Doctors, with all the belief that medicine would eradicate all diseases in the world, were left helpless. It was years till they realized, more than two decades till they realized that it's actually a virus. Years afterwards, how to combat that virus. And only in our time, recently, this remarkable story of the genome sequencing of the 1918 virus. We now know exactly how the 1918 virus looked. We still haven't solved all its riddles, but medicine can show us an advance, a way of grappling with it which we couldn't before. And that in itself has stimulated interest, I believe, in the flu. And lastly, of course, as Ida mentioned clearly, the centenary, these dates, which again I learned from John Horne years ago, and he's reminded me that again, that we live in a modern time, we like round dates, we like centenaries. A hundred years later, it's no difference if it's 20 years or 30 years, but psychologically for us it's different. A hundred years seems like we're closing a circle. And so now we want to deal with the flu. And as the centenary approached, we have a larger context. And the great difference now, I think, is now we're also open to looking at transnational memory. And the great problem with the flu is, it's not an epidemic, it was a pandemic. We wrote national histories in the past, and you can't write a simple national history just of the flu. You can write a history of the flu in Ireland, and a history of the flu in, in, in North America, and in England, and in France, and in Germany. India hasn't been written properly, as you said, China and other places. But it'll never capture the whole picture, because it changes and crosses borders all the time. It defies these categories. It can be easily politicized. There are no villains and no heroes. We need to look at history differently. And only now we're beginning to look at these kind of new forms of history. Now, I expect that I'm coming to an end here, but I'll just mention briefly that I could have told the same story I told now with other sources. Just to kind of, I'll just mention it without even saying in detail. We could have looked at it through cultural history. We could have asked, where are the novels of the great flu, for example? There are lots, lots of novels, the whole lost generation that wrote literature about the Great War. But when we look for the Great Flu in English, and I've looked at many languages, but let's just show English here for the moment, there are very few books which famously describe the flu. Most famous, perhaps, maybe, is Pale Horse, Pale Rider, the novella by Catherine Ann Porter. But there are a few others. But these never really made the canon of literature. They're not like the famous books and poetry that we know. In poetry, it's even more difficult to find poems, which I've looked at. And yet... For years, this was not a topic in literature, but if you want to see rediscovery, have a look at what's happening now. I have a private hobby of collecting every book that comes out on the flu. For years, that meant the hobby wasn't indulged. I had nothing to buy. <laughs> but in the last few years, I've been running a book account which doesn't seem to end, book after book after book, with titles from, you wouldn't believe it, from science fiction to juvenile fiction to mysteries to any kind of book on the background of the flu. And it goes on and on and on. I can keep giving more titles. And this is just a small selection. Most of these books, almost entirely, are what we would call minor literature. We're still waiting for the great author to come and write a book on the flu and its background. But people are latching onto it like wildfire at the moment. All these kind of minor books coming out as people are rediscovering the flu and its potential. So that's one way of looking at it. And I could have said the same story, by the way, of asking about cinema. We have cinema of World War I. Where's cinema of the flu? It's an interesting one here. I'll just add this. I wasn't going to mention it, but it's funny. Has anybody seen the new Dumbo? It's interesting, the new Dumbo, because you'll see they've changed from the original Dumbo. And in the new Dumbo, it begins with the story of Spanish flu. 
So that's interesting. It suddenly creeps in in unexpected places. So that's a promo. I'm not getting anything from Disney for that, I can assure you. We can look at monuments, which is, of course, what I was talking about. So where are the monuments? And why don't we look at other cultures and other forms of remembrance? I always found it striking that if you go to New Zealand, already in 1920, there was a Maori monument to the flu in 1920, using forms which we might identify as World War I commemoration, but localized to indigenous culture. And then for years, no remembrance of the flu, even though there's huge remembrance of Anzac Day, of course, in New Zealand. And again, in recent years, 1988, the first monument, and now for the centenary, new monuments. And they've been speaking about a national monument for the great flu in New Zealand, which was supposed to be launched, unveiled a few months ago, but is still waiting to be unveiled. So it's run into problems. So, to wind up this whole long journey, if I may, and bring us back to where we are now and to our host, to the best of my knowledge, this is the first national commemoration hosted on a level of a head of state who convenes an event. We're sitting here at the moment and we're playing a part in history, and that's why it was so significant for me to be here. <coughs> because it's not looking at a subject, we're taking part in something new here. This is the first event where it's being set aside, a day is being set aside to try and understand the legacy and the heritage of the flu. And therefore it is fitting that in the decade of centenaries, a day is devoted to thinking why we forgot about the flu and what it means to us today. And I'd like to thank President Higgins for that. Thank you.